Hi, I'm Dawson Moore. I'm a spoon carver from Harbor Springs, Michigan, and this is Cut the Craft. Are you there like zombie apocalypse shelter? Uh, <laughs> kind of, yeah. We're, we're like the ones in the family that are like up on a secluded farm. You know, and they they were in Ann Arbor and feeling kind of freaked out, so they they came up like almost three weeks ago now. Oh wow! I was hoping you were going to say like they came up like two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but just how funny would it be? Feel like yeah, they were just feeling real weird in Ann Arbor, so they came up, and everyone's like assuming it's because of coronavirus. <laughs> so they've been with us for about two years. <laughs> okay. Welcome to Cut the Craft, everyone. I'm Brian. And I'm Amy. And we are here with Dawson Moore. Hello. <laughs> hey. Hi, Dawson. Hi, Amy. Hi, Brian. So, Dawson, can you tell us what you make and a little bit about your the work itself, your process, and maybe paint a picture for our listeners? I guess I'm known for spoon carving mostly at this point, you know, and that it ranges, all the, you know cooking utensils, eating utensils, and then I do cups and bowls and things like that. And uh, I do, I dabble in some other stuff, a little birch bark weaving and tool making and chairs and stuff a little bit. The common thread between everything I do is that it starts with a log and ends with knife cut finishes and um, involves, I'd say I'm part of the green woodworking Um, And to to me, all that means is kind of understanding and taking advantage of the moisture content of the wood I'm working with. So, you know, it doesn't always mean working super wet wood or always working super dry wood. It's usually something in between. It's kind of the gist of it. So so by that, you mean that you're uh, when you say you're taking advantage of the moisture of the wood is you're just sort of meeting it where it is and making the most of whatever that situation happens to be like whatever state the wood happens to be ideally i'm not just responding to whatever i get it's more i have a plan in mind you know if if i'm using something really green and wet it's because i want that task to be easy to cut you know easier to work Mm -hmm. um if i if something's drier it's because i want it to be dry maybe to get a nicer finish or in relation to another part or something like that but it is it's me controlling the situation not just reacting to given materials or whatever right yeah Yeah, i was gonna say because so much of your work is so clean and orderly and you can really I mean, it's so consistent. So I would have been kind of surprised if you're like, I don't know, I just kind of see the wood where it is. And then, like, <laughs> that's that's more my style. <laughs> I'm like, hmm, this log's okay. Yeah, there's a certain amount of that, but sure, you know, the the goal is to, you know, there's an ideal you've got in your head that you're trying to work with, basically. Do you think you could tell us a little bit about? what to look for out of a wet piece of wood versus a dry piece of wood and what you can use those two things for. Right. So in general, wet wood is just easier to work with, with hand tools, which is I'm, I use primarily hand tools, but I do, I incorporate some power tools 
kind of usually in the middle of the process. But really, the using wet wood for spoons, cups, bowls, all that is really just about making it easier to work. It's easiest to, you know, if you're going out into the woods and getting your own material, it, it pretty much needs to be fresh if you, it depends on the species and stuff, but if you leave it sitting around too long, it's either going to rot or it's going to check and crack. You have to work it green before it starts cracking on you. And the fact that it's green makes it easier to work. So it's like all those mm-hmm. things are kind of playing into the equation there. Can you tell us why wood cracks if it's green and it's not um, made into something? Or why, why does a log check in the woods if you're not um, doing anything with it? And checks refer to those little cracks, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, uh, yeah, small cracks usually happening in the end grain but there there there's definitely species that uh check on the uh the the face of the growth rings but yeah it's it it will crack because of uh a differential of drying time so drying wood means shrinking wood and so you've got the outside drying which means shrinking faster than the middle of the wood, which is drying and shrinking slower. And so that, that causes extreme tensions that get released in the form of cracks, basically. I mentioned green woodworking and the stuff I make. It is, it's in the world of uh, sloid as well, which is it's that Scandinavian-based educational system um, based around handcrafts and there that is that's a big component of what got me started and some of the aesthetics and definitely the processes involved now, how does it how does it fit into what you're doing yeah so what drew me to it was um it, it kind of was the educational aspect and the i thought that the aspirations of it were it, it was interesting to me it was stuff like trying to get kids from an early stage in life to kind of like strengthen character and build self-reliance and concentration and kind of give them instill in them their own sense of kind of neatness and like a, an appreciation for labor and uh i think really that self-reliance thing without anyone else's help it's like they can go get these materials and use simple tools and make something functional that can help them out in their life. You know, I love making stuff and doing, actually practicing the craft, but I I did want to leave room when I was thinking, you know, originally thinking about all this and the path I might take, uh, leaving room for teaching as well. I've had a little bit of experience with it now and I it's feeling promising like it'll be something I, I want to keep doing more of. Where do you teach? Are you teaching from your um, workshop? I had done a little bit of that in the past, and there was pros and cons to that. But uh, more recently, mm-hmm. I hooked up with this newer folk school in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is about four hours south of me. 
Um, it's just called the Michigan Folk School. Mm. And uh, I really like that. They, I kind of like that someone else handles a lot of the logistics of scheduling mm-hmm. and payment and all that kind of stuff. And it just leaves me the teaching part. And that felt a lot more comfortable in a lot of ways. And it um, having young kids around the house just can make it tricky to have people. In, I work out of my house. Uh, my shop's in the lower level of our house. And it can be tricky to have people over for long periods of time and work around nap schedules. And <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Since you're a full-time craftsperson and you have a partner and two little kids, how do you balance the work and your family life? I do my best. It's probably nowhere near perfect. I try to keep a, you know, pretty regular work schedule, like something around 8.30 to 5, Monday through Friday, and just make sure the evenings and weekends are family time. But I do have a ton of flexibility with that you know when there was school I was taking my son to school every morning (laughs) when there was school back when there was school yeah um which that that was pretty much the favorite part of my day and uh yeah you drop him off and see him go skipping into class and you're like well it all goes downhill from here (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) that's about 8 a.m yeah (laughs) And then, yeah, like I said, just being at home, there's tons of flexibility. If there's doctor appointments or grocery trips or or whatever, I can just slide in and help out whenever whenever's necessary. And you know, it's it's what's working right now for us. It, I, I'm fully aware that the only reason I can do what I'm doing is because of huge sacrifices uh, by my wife taking taking the brunt of the kid action what does she do like what how what does that mean uh just full-time child care oh okay uh other than school and stuff so i have a four uh almost five year old and like a one and a half year old and it is just it's a full-time job it's incredible Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah whenever i Whenever I have days of alone dad duty, it's it's a very eye opening <laughs> as to what, <laughs> how big of a task that that can be. I was gonna ask about um, you know sort of this tradition of Sloyd that you were talking about earlier. Have you incorporated that into your relationship with your own kids? Like that sort of idea of you know training from this young age and self reliance and all that. Um, it is, it's coming, you know, I've been trying shop time with the kids. Uh, again, that's, it just totally depends on the day or the week. Um, sometimes they'll be content for an hour or two and sometimes it's about 30 seconds, (laughs) but, uh, I've got Otto's, uh, Otto's becoming quite little builder. He really loves Legos and drawing and um he's getting more into paper craft which is kind of a precursor in the slide tradition starting to develop hand coordination and that kind of stuff so Mm -hmm. i think he he's getting quite close to where i'll be incorporating more actual tools i've i've had him use a spoke shave 
Um, he's done some hammer and nails and stuff. Um, cool. But yeah, that'll come a lot more. Another thought I had on Sloyd is that a lot of people in the craft community, myself included, um, it's it's possible we give it more reverence than uh, you know than perhaps it deserves, or or just just to keep things unbiased here, I I have a funny anecdote from uh, <laughs> this. I took a class with Jared Dahl. It was for people who want to teach spoon carving. And we had this guy, Anders Lindberg from Sweden, uh, join in the class. Mm-hmm. And he happened to have his, it was his son and brother traveling with him. And so we got to spend a lot of time in the evenings with them. And, uh, it became clear that their view of Sloyd was kind of like how we view the very like kitschy arts and crafty hobbyist stuff here in America. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. And it was yeah, a very definitely. like eye-opening. It, we we were kind of joking that my my business name would translate to Michigan Rinky Dink Handicraft. <laughs> 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 Wait, so we can put it to rest now that there is no person named Lloyd and that it is Michigan Sloyd, not Michigan's Lloyd. Correct. Yeah, that is a. I, it wasn't, wasn't maybe not the best business name. <laughs> pretty, confu- pretty confusing to most people. Do you, wait, do you, do you get a lot of legitimate confusion? For, I mean, I was just making a bad joke that I'm sure many other people have made. But do people genuinely <laughs> ask you that? <laughs> Very genuinely. Wow. No. Most of my uh, business and sales are in the real world in a farmer's market scenario. Uh, and yeah. so it's it's not crafty people at all. I'm mean, at 95, you know, probably 99% of the time, customers and people coming up to me at market have nothing to do with woodworking or craft in general. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I get uh, Lloyd questions all the time. <laughs> Do they start the question with "So Lloyd"? Um, I have had checks made out to Lloyd more. Oh no! Before. <laughs> and if any of our listeners have made this mistake before, we're not trying to make you feel bad. Yeah, no, not at all. It's it's just so funny. It was a like I said, it was a. It was a that was a passion decision more than a logical <laughs> decision. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah, I'm really yeah. glad I asked. Yeah, and I think it yeah. was healthy, a healthy experience to have that uh, the whole notion kind of crushed by these <laughs> Swedish people. It was, I think, yeah. it was healthy in the end. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what do? How would they describe sort of more what y'all are doing then, or is there a word for it? It's indescribable. <laughs> so their their dad and brother it is making a you know he's making a living doing Sloyd. You know, it's uh, as in in the kitschy handcraft way. No, that's just it's like his stuff is very nice. Um, they. That's just how they view it in general, kind of. Not oh, as a, not a not as a one to one kind. Of, it's uh, that was kind of like their more global perspective of of Sloyd in general. 
you know, I'm sure people in within the Sloyd tradition, you know, at the craft schools, at the Sloyd schools, um, don't view it that way. But that was that was more of a the Scandinavian lay person's interpretation. Which As I in, thought. like making little wooden baubles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, googly yeah. eyes, glitter. Yeah, <laughs> it's just interesting. Like, I feel like there's something about that that points to people in the United States needing some sort of, I don't know, like tradition that, to hearken yeah, to, like, or like an anchor. Right, yeah, yeah, an anchor point. Uh, could for... you say, Amy? Could you say a sense of place? <laughs> <laughs> all right all right enough of that that's the name of amy's article in the latest edition of mortis and tenon magazine which is incredible by the way and i would highly recommend reading it yeah i read yeah. it two days ago and it's, i've been thinking about it the, this is a a common theme as, as i was looking over some of the uh thinking about these questions and stuff is that there is a both and factor to all this stuff it's like Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's a lot of things that are important about tradition and uh, having a reverence for craft. And I think there, uh, there's just the flip side, too. There's, you know, it can be mm-hmm. silly and ridiculous. And mm-hmm. I, I just I think it's a little bit of both always kind of. I agree with that. From what I've seen in the green woodworking community, um, it feels like it's the fact that people want and need something this badly of like having something to sort of have a starting point of like legitimating something like Mm -hmm. I'm doing this because of, you know, all these reasons I'm, I have Swedish heritage or I have German heritage or I have whatever heritage. Um, And so what I'm doing means something more than just, just the fact that it's a spoon or just the fact that it's a bowl. No, it's like connected to this other thing that's much bigger than me and all these people and all that kind of stuff. And I think the fact that we've, as a community of green woodworkers, have drawn so heavily on Swedish tradition um, is interesting because my my experience is the same as what you've said, Dawson. It's like you go to Sweden and it's not like it's sloyd heaven or it's just like everything has all this like crafty wooden stuff all over the place. They're kind of a subculture of handcraft people. And a lot of it is not even really paid much attention to in Sweden. So it's not it's not right. as if I don't I just don't think they give it the same weight that we do um, as green woodworkers who are drawing on the Sloyd tradition and it's just kind of interesting. Yeah. You know, I get, I get the, the draw to try to try and find the meaning and stuff and things, but I, yeah, Mm -hmm. I do. I definitely think it can go too far and it, it gives you kind of a tunnel vision. I don't know. Yeah. It's like, you want to feel like what you're doing is important and meaningful, but it, Mm -hmm. um, I think I think the thing to realize is that it can be important and meaningful to you. Uh, it does not have to be important and meaningful to everybody. Yeah. And I, I think that's enough. I don't think it has to be more than that. Right. Yeah, but how are you going to inundate people with your dogma if it's just about your own personal satisfaction? <laughs> It, it is. Question, it Brian. does create quite the stumble. 
I think the dangerous part of that is not being honest with yourself at just like the enjoyment you get out of doing what you're doing. I think if you, Mm -hmm. if you're constantly trying to justify it to yourself with all these added reasons and to like puff up the importance of it or something. Yeah. It's keeping your own, your own self from, understand like having a real honest relationship with it just between you and the craft let alone trying to you know whatever message you're trying to get across to the public or whatever but again there's uh it's like both and with that too you know there there uh there is a place for finding meaning in it and it um but i just i just think it's got to be a balance and sometimes i see that being out of balance yeah I think. yeah so lloyd when looking <laughs> at your work <laughs> i noticed that it's pretty minimalist and clean and from the pictures i've seen on social media your workspace is very clean and pretty minimal first of all is that true and how does your relationship to the space that you work in influence your work or ability to work it is true. That's a correct observation. It's extremely <laughs> true. Yes. Uh, <laughs> my shop is actually that clean, almost always, um, out of frame and in frame. <laughs> 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 well, first of all, I view it as it's just, it's another opportunity to create something. It's another act of creation. It really, it, it's like just as big a part of my craft as the, the objects I make, in my opinion. I'm shooting for, you know, a really calming atmosphere. It's like I, I come down to the shop and it's I've got, you know, really kind of dim, natural morning light, plain wood surfaces and everything's got a place and put away and tucked away. And it's 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 like a blank slate. And uh, it just, it really lets me kind of laser focus on the work at hand without being distracted in any way. And I just, um, I, uh, I'm like a neat freak, kind of type A, kind of control freak uh, mentality. <laughs> it just I sounds tr- so funny, like hearing you saying it in like such a chill surfer voice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's like I know that about myself. I try Mm -hmm. to channel it, hopefully in a healthy way, into my work so that it doesn't creep into the rest of my life and have Mm -hmm. all the negative consequences that, you know, that type type of uh, personality can have on a a normal life, relationships Mm -hmm. and... All that kind of thing. <laughs> so I just try to really get it all out in my my uh, my work and my. It, that's the other thing. It's I I'm in a sh- in my shop for the majority of my life right now. It is by a huge amount. It's like I'm in there at least eight or nine hours a day, five days a week. That's way more than anything else I'm doing. I, I want my shop to be as nice as my means allow. Um, mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. I've, I've put a tremendous amount of work into it. And I, to me, it pays off. To me, it's every minute I spend 
making my shop nicer is, you know, has a payoff in the end, basically. It gives me a sense of readiness and like power to create when I walk in my shop. And that's, it's designed that way and like super, super intentional to be that um, whenever I walk in. Uh, Sweeping has been a running, it's definitely a running joke amongst my family and friends. It's, uh, (laughs) it's, for whatever reason, I find it very calming and centering. It's like if uh, the joke is basically that if if Dawson is sweeping, it it means he like needs a second. He he got overwhelmed (laughs) and is like taking a moment. Um, so like at the end of the day, it is, it's a nice, it's kind of just gives me a minute to relax at the end of the day and, uh, you know, get, you know, kind of switch, switch mental modes and stuff before heading upstairs to the family and stuff like that too. So it's, Hmm. it's got kind of a nice transitional element to it. My shop is actually, it is it's up to code and finish as living space too. So I kind of, I kind of treat it that way. Um, and it will probably, uh, someday I'll probably build an outdoor shop and it will become actual living space. I like how much you know about all those code and zoning laws because you built your own house. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You're like, it is up to code (laughs) y'all. I I even I took that further. I mean, uh, for about the past year and a half, I, I've been on the our township's planning commission as well. <laughs> oh, <wow>. <laughs> <laughs> Picturing a, you walking in there, striding in with your flip flops, flapping away, yep. <laughs> and a broom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about the spoon mule? I know that that's something that you've got kicking around in your shop. So the spoon meal—it's just—it's a device specifically designed around spoon carving. It's a work holding device, and it lets you quickly clamp and unclamp over and over again whatever you're working on using feet and legs to put clamping pressure on, and that frees up both hands to use two-handed tools like draw knives and spoke shaves and uh, hook knives and stuff like that, and uh. It's, it's really influenced my whole process um, of doing production spoons. I, I picked up the idea. It, it was apparently used in Sweden. Jared Dahl had seen a photo of it and kind of built, I don't know how many iterations he built, but he, he came up with a design based off pictures from Sweden. And I kind of uh, took it from there and kind of built my own version. Oh, cool. Like I said, it, it, it affects the whole way I work. It does, uh, affect my aesthetic a bit as well. There are certain shapes and things that it, it does better than others. And I, I take advantage of that seeking kind of efficiency and just kind of the following the path of least resistance kind of thing. And, um, oh, it's where, it's where I really, got my affinity for the draw knife which is definitely my favorite tool is that is that just a general woodworking tool that a lot of people use or is it sort of specific to a trade originally before it started getting used more broadly 
Does that make uh, sense? Because uh, Tim, Tim Manny talked about it a lot in our interview with him and how it was like the perfect chair maker's tool. I and would so, say, I'd say <laughs> that's correct. Um, it definitely is uh, a, a great chair making tool. And maybe that's the main context you see it in a certain woodworking community. Like uh, Cooper, if you're a Cooper, someone who's making yeah. barrels, which, you know, isn't a huge trade right now <laughs> other than yep. like the you know brewing industry uh, or uh wine making and distilling and that kind of stuff um yeah they it's use them a lot see, yeah yeah it seems like a bit more esoteric and even more niche craft but i i think just like mm-hmm. all the other crafts I, I see more and more coopering going on mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but going back to the real world folks on the street kind of uh, experience I get from farmer's market, most people are like, oh, that's the tool I used to strip bark off of trees when I was a kid with my dad or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the general public sees it kind of more like a farm tool or like log building mm-hmm. or log cabin building tool kind of thing. A lot of them had grandparents they saw using them. I get a lot strange amount of people that know the german name for the shave horse oh interesting a, a schnitzel box. i get that like <laughs> a dozen times a year at least what <laughs> which are are you bringing are you bringing like the spoon mule or shaving horse and your draw knife to market yes yeah cool. yeah okay and just for uh obviously we can't see what these things look like through our conversation but we'll be sure to post pictures of uh, both the spoon mule and a shaving horse, just so you can kind of see a little bit of the difference in how they work. I, I could have said it's it's a bench you sit down at, so your your feet are free to operate the clamping mechanism, and your arms are free to work the tools. And it just it, it really just takes advantage of your body's mechanics and the mechanics of the tool and stuff. It, it it's it's incredible how much work you can accomplish just with one hand tool and one of these work holding devices. A bird call refers to the bird calling and the call itself is its signature. With roots, branches, and stems, words are the trees in the woods of syntax. Orally or visually, the way they are formed changes how they are perceived. This is one reason why most people laugh at the unfortunate font Comic Sans, even though its name means comic without. Calligraphy is a word referring to the creation of signs usually denoting language transmitted by hand through the use of an instrument like a brush, quill, or pen. The word translates from the Greek as beauty to write. Your mind might be inclined to switch that so it goes to write beauty for grammatical correctness, but the literal actually provides a rare view of the calligrapher, hereby known as the woodpecker of the linguistic forest. Among other reasons, woodpeckers drum on wood to draw a mate, often using dead trees and hollow logs. You could say they make the best sounding boards. Another way of looking at it is to say they're making dead trees speak by communicating through them. Sound calligraphy refers back to the calligrapher, whose beauty draws life into symbols which are dead without their signature script, 
attracting viewers influenced by the manner in which those symbols are expressed. But it looks like a word about graphing calls. By the same token, Moss Grimes looks like more Grimes in Spanish, something that might be shouted at a Grimes concert while calling for an encore. But in our case, it's the business moniker of one David Thomas Grimes. No relation. Designer, calligrapher, and woodpecker of the linguistic forest out in Portland, Oregon. He's a man of many hands, but I wouldn't call him a Krishna with a pen because he's particularly engrossed with one, which you'll have to be careful learning about in the next episode, or else you might get too sucked in. Or, call me a tease. But maybe that's the whole idea. So you keep the price point on your work very affordable. And what goes into that decision-making process? And it seems that there's a divide in the green woodworking world about mask production versus bespoke objects. What do you think about that? So yeah, the the whole pricing your work idea, it yeah, it does seem to be a common source of stress for a lot of makers, I would say, and it is does get talked about quite a bit in in various contexts, but uh I try to make it about balancing like two simple factors and it like the first thing is do I enjoy making the object? If I don't, it's like a non-starter. I don't, I don't really care if it's something that would sell or sell well. It just doesn't make sense to me if I don't like making it. Mm-hmm. The, the second thing is just does it sell at a price that hits my target hourly wage? For myself, personally, I've found it easiest to view myself like a skilled tradesman and kind of set a hourly wage in that ballpark that kind of world of you know maybe electricians or plumbers or yeah and then it's it's just it simplifies it it's if i like making it and i can sell it at a price that hits that hourly wage i'm good i try to not really let moral justifications enter that equation what is what does that mean you know, some people might feel like drawn to making their work available to a wider audience as far as affordability goes. And I I just try not to think of it in those terms so much. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of my work is what we would call affordable for the, for an average person here. I mean, again, going back to market, I have people that walk up to my booth and laugh in in my face about how Mm -hmm. ridiculously overpriced my spoons are. Mm -hmm. I've had had people that think that my dollar amounts are cents. I've I've had someone put (laughs) a 25 cent piece on my table to buy one of my spoons. Whoa. It it doesn't matter what you think. It's going to be viewed how it's going to be viewed by any person that comes across it. So it it Mm -hmm. literally doesn't matter what you think. I have stuff that's way higher priced too, and I don't have any qualms about it. Again, it comes down to do I like making it and can I sell it and still make that same hourly wage? And uh, 
it's like if I get into more into this chair thing I'm working on right now, that that puts me into a way, way different price point. But again, I'm going to, I'll be able to have that kind of foundation of feeling comfortable charging an hourly wage that I feel is fair. To me, that's easy. What feels less comfortable to me right now is trying to put a price on my design, uh, like like an artist might or more people coming mm-hmm. from more of the design world might. I don't think that's a bad thing to do, and I might go more that way myself. When you say charge someone for a design, do you mean charge someone for the time it took you to make that design, or do you mean to actually sell like plans for something? Exactly. i don't you know i don't know yeah to an extent i've done that with my yeah i didn't mention that the spoon meals i've sold those both built ready to use versions but i also sell plans to build your own and so that's one area where yeah i am that's me putting a price on a design it's it's become totally disconnected to to my actual time put into that project right and that had a lot of precedence though i could i could look at what other people were doing and charging and it was a very one-to-one equation it was you know it, it made it very simple i didn't have to do much of the hard choices on that one just because there was other stuff so similar out there already yeah selling plans that's for a chair for instance you know, if you look into these modern design worlds, there's chairs that can sell for $10,000 that are being mass manufactured. And it's, you're paying for that design concept. It's like that, that type Mm -hmm. of thing. Again, I'm not saying it's wrong. I I have not gotten to that point myself yet, but I may in the future. It is just that seems much trickier to me. Yeah, I was so it sounds like you're pretty good at logging your hours. Is that just because you keep a very regular work schedule or are you really keeping track of how long you're working on this batch of fifty spoons or whatever? I, I do the latter. I do I do specific time trials. You know, I'll I'll develop a product or object or whatever kind of work out the kinks of production and then once i know that i'm doing it about as fast as i can i've like worked the kinks out then i'll do a a real solid time trial with a a, usually a large batch to get you know a more accurate average and uh, And your son otto is like standing there with a stopwatch (laughs) and a little tracksuit right yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah and then maybe I'll maybe check in with that. There's no rhyme or reason to it. I'll, you know, maybe six months will go by and I'll just be like, I'll double check and see if I'm still in that kind of same zone. Well, and kind of on that note, I mean, you talk about doing these large batches and things like that. It's obvious that you have a pretty consistent output. I think that anytime I've been like, oh crap, such and such's birthday's coming up. I know for a fact that if I go to your website, there will be something in stock. And so my question about that, though, is like, what do you do to get back into things when you're not feeling it? Or do you are you just always like turbo mode? (laughs) (laughs) It ebbs and flows a little bit. Winters are harder for me to 
keep super focused in the midst of summer and the markets it's just so busy and i need to make product with every minute i have i kind of find that freeing almost it means i'm not waffling or having to choose what to do that day really like uh, there's a little bit of that to me that's fine I kind of like just getting into work and zoning out. But going way back to the other half of Amy's question, do you see there as being a divide in the green woodworking world between that production versus bespoke? I think there can be the appearance of one, no doubt. Mm -hmm. And maybe there is one, but I I think it's most likely a few people with loud opinions making it seem that way i don't i think it's kind of silly i think it's just a a pretty much different strokes for different folks kind of thing Mm -hmm. i will say i my buttons can get pushed and i find it a little annoying when people push a narrative of production work being soulless some people just paint production as being very negative and I think <laughs> I think that that you're like you know I'm sitting here right <laughs> yeah I, I just it it's always people who don't do production work and really don't have firsthand experience they're a different person they're not the person right. doing the production work and saying yeah. how that person feels it's like just kind of absurd and and that goes both ways it's like I'm sure there's production people that think that you know all bespoke work is just like flighty or like you know in a i don't know you know whatever negative description but uh insert negative review yeah um (laughs) but i i think and that touches that touches on like a wider grievance i see when people describe whatever they're doing they can only describe their process in opposition to a worse process you get what i'm saying (laughs) it's like they can't they can't just say what they like about how they work it's i do it this way because this other way is wrong kind of thing right and i just think that's there's no point in that it weakens whatever their whatever point they're trying to make because it like they're they're saying it can't stand alone and be right. self-evident uh, right. for its own sake they're saying it's they only do it that way because this other way is less good yeah. or whatever well and, like uh, your whole identity is based on the thing that you don't like <laughs> right. which doesn't yes, make any exactly. sense exactly exactly um, yeah and yeah, so, it's more just yeah, casting a light on a negative light on something else in order to make yours seem a little bit more positive, but it has the ne- the opposite effect. <laughs> yes. And uh you know, that is something I see a little bit, but again, I my gut feeling is that that's a vast minority that mm-hmm. just happens to, you know, talk about it a lot kind of thing. I don't mm-hmm. I I doubt that's how most people in the craft world really think on a day-to-day basis for the record i i i don't find production work soulless i think i <laughs> do have a soul <laughs> i'm sorry dawson this is incompatible with our philosophy and we're cutting it yeah <laughs>
Who invited this guy? No, I think that that's really, I think personally, I have a tendency to dismiss production. And that's not, and I, you know, the things that you're, you're saying, I think are sort of convicting for me because I think it's so hard for me to be interested in mass produced things, like for myself personally. And I think when I first started out, I was really kind of like, everyone should be doing it this way or everyone should be doing it that way. And then it, as you grow as a person, you sort of realize that like, oh, you know, there are other ways to be in the world. And it's something that like gives me a lot of like happiness and, and you know, just sort of makes me, makes me feel good about myself isn't necessarily going to be the same thing for someone else. And that's okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's sort yeah. of just like a naive view, a naive like worldview to just say, well, this is the way that it should be because of my, my own um, experience in the world. And it has to be the same for everyone else because that's the right way, you know, and I don't believe that at all. And I think as you grow in making things and as you grow just as a person that that hopefully will become apparent. (laughs) Maybe that's not true for everybody, but it would be nice. (laughs) I, I think you can even take that further. It's like a different ways of thinking about and doing things is great. It's just whatever, but it might not even be different, a different feeling or thoughts. It's like, it could just be what level of focus you're at, you know, for Mm -hmm. someone doing bespoke objects, the single object they're working on, that's like, that's the world, that's the goal. Whereas Mm -hmm. maybe in production mode, it isn't the single object that is the goal. It's like the pile of objects that's the goal. Mm-hmm. It's like, you see what I'm saying? It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just scale. Yeah, it's the scale or the level mm-hmm. of focus or whatever. It's like, I might have the exact same motivations and feelings. It's just manifesting at a different, in a different way or something. Yeah. Too. Yeah. So when I first got into green, green woodworking, which was probably about seven years ago or something like that um it felt like there was a huge push and focus and maybe this is just my perception clearly everything is my (laughs) perception i i felt like in order to be like legitimate in the green woodworking world it had to be mass produced like every the focus was like you know we're gonna like change the whole universe with producing all of these these things, you know, and it's going to change capitalism and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, I don't like, I personally don't like making the same thing over and over and over. That's just me though. Like that has nothing to do with what other people should be doing. But I think the realization that I was in control of the things that I can make and I don't have to fit into what other people say we should be making as a subculture was like a huge growth for me. Like I had to like, it was a very big transformation process where I was like, oh, I can just make whatever I want to (laughs) make. Like it doesn't have to be a certain mindset. And so I think that was, that was big for me. Um, And it kind of goes into what you're saying, I think a little bit. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's just because I'm married to an ecologist, but variety and diversity are the most important things in Mm -hmm. any any area, whether mm-hmm. it has to do with actual uh, like biology, but 
even within handcraft, in order for it to be healthy, there has to be everything from someone making one object a year and that being their sole income to mm-hmm. someone who's cranking out things on the daily. I just think mm-hmm. having that range of options available and aesthetics and experiences is, I mean, what's going to uh, ensure the survival of like handcraft or whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a good point. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. And uh, yeah, I, I want to say too, um, for me, production has nothing to do with lofty goals of changing economies or mm-hmm. anything like that in that realm. Mm-hmm. It does. It's not. Uh, it it has everything to do with like just my own happiness kind of, like much in the mm-hmm. same way you felt yeah. it freeing to find what you like to do it those, yeah. those are my same motivations in doing in doing production work it's like mm-hmm. it physically feels good to me and mentally <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. like it's it's about developing like a certain flow and and skill set it, it it's it could be completely divorced from sales and that kind of thing. And so it's about the process, like the the process it's, yeah, itself. It's, yes, makes yes. you feel really <laughs> yes, good. Yes, yes, yes. 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 <laughs> right. Yeah. I feel like I say that every time when I'm waiting for someone, <laughs> and I'm like, it's about the process. <laughs> well, even in that Mortis and Tenon, the interview with Roy Underhill, he talks about the mm. exact same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously yeah. people who are making things care about the final product, mm-hmm. but uh, you have to sort of detach yourself from it because all you get to keep is the process. Right. Right. Yeah, that is it. I, I, I saw that snippet as well and thought and thought it was it was pretty good. It's got a, mm-hmm. there's a lot to that. It's almost like that guy knows what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah. So what's with the carrots? <laughs> It's pretty simple. It identifies me as a member of a secretive gnome cult. <laughs> what? I want to be part of it. Can I have a carrot? Sorry, Amy, you're a hobbit. No. Okay, fine. It's really limited uh, to only people who can buy uh, a $15 carrot from the North House gift shop, though. So it's pretty exclusive. <laughs> And by North, North House, you're referring to North House Folk School, correct? Yes. Yeah. Uh, which for those of you who don't, who want to know more about this mysterious center of a carrot cult, a gnome <laughs> cult, um, listen to Birch Bark Beth's episode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> These carrots are, they are carved by kind of a grandfather uh, of craft to that school, kind of. It's, it's this guy, Harley Revsall. And mm-hmm. he he's a liter, literally wrote the book or several books on that style of carving that that carrot mm-hmm. is. It's called Swedish flat plane carving. My carrot was traded for a spoon, <laughs> and uh, it will. It's another one of those things of being both. And it, it, it I view it <laughs> personally. To me, the con with with the surrounding context, it's like like a very powerful sloyd talisman that gives me all my carving powers and stuff (laughs) Um, and on the flip side it's like a dad joke it is a one carat necklace (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, <laughs> and it both reminds me of like these deeper meanings within the craft and reminds me to not take it so seriously all at the mm-hmm. same time. I like that. It's not often probably present in my work, at least to out the outside perspective. Uh, but I, I was drawn to that kind of playfulness that mm-hmm. tends to be a part of Sloyd craft mm-hmm. items. Um, I really like it. It's uh, still in, in the mix and inspires me quite a bit. So outside of green woodworking and spoon carving, what else are you interested in besides carrots? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it really comes down to more, more acts of creation. It's building a life for my family. It's like house mm-hmm. projects and gardening and land stewardship and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I don't have much free time at all these days with between work and uh, kids. It's mm-hmm. incredible. What do you wish people not involved in the craft uh, that you're in knew about it? I think this touches on what we were talking about earlier too. It's I I don't really think of it in those terms. I think it's uh, I don't think we have much of a say in how our work is perceived. You know, I'm drawn from my market experience again. It's like in a given day, I might have 1,200 people walk by my tent of spoons and the reactions that my work elicits in those people is wildly different for everyone. Some people literally laugh at me and think I'm, you know, uh, like a socialist hippie kind of person. <laughs> some people, some people view me as like an incredible artist. Kids, there's, you know, who knows what kids think. I have kids come up and watch me, and some of them think I'm just like funny. Some, some get like deeply entranced and will watch me for like an hour. <laughs> Every single one of them whispers, save me, as their parents are like taking them away. <laughs> what I find intriguing and holds my attention and stuff is it's unmediated creation. It's like I can, it's like a mini God experience. It's like you are the creator in a sense. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, you get to walk out into the woods collect your own material, use simple tools. You know, you're bringing an object out of your mind into the material world. Then at the same time, you're working with these materials that are like obviously outside of yourself. They were created by some other, you know, some other means completely that has nothing to do with you. The material (laughs) has a level of perfection that, is just it's astounding working with wood maybe you know i'm sure other crafts people get the sensation with other natural materials like clay and stuff but uh it's like that feeling you get when you're hiking in a, on a mountain or something and you feel like a insignificant speck of dust i think <laughs> i think you kind of get like the opposite of the god experience <laughs> exactly it's i think it's those two feelings playing off each other in kind of a harmonious way or something that, hmm. that to me that's what is interesting 
I think that's what draws me in is that it's just like a very raw, like direct experience. I like my work to reflect that. I'll tend to make stuff light, precise, and skinny, and like bumping up on the edges of like what the material can do. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's it's kind of like showing the magic of the material and the magic of human in- ingenuity, like working together to make something that you wouldn't have thought possible kind of like Mm -hmm. a super skinny flexible spatula it's like i think the appeal of that to other people is like it kind of creates a sense of wonder like it lets them see wood as a material in a way that they wouldn't have conceived of it before like Mm -hmm. acting in a way that they would have thought impossible kind of it's almost um, um, it's almost Dadaist, kind of. What? When they make you know the art movement. <laughs> oh, Dada. Oh, right. I thought I thought right. you said dot eyes. I was like, what is that? Amy. <laughs> way, I'm talking about furry teacups. So it's like I, you know, that's what I like about working with these materials, and I try to make stuff that shows that like that shows a bit of the process and a bit Mm -hmm. of that magical aspect Mm -hmm. but at the same time i know that it's beyond doing that it's up to everyone else as to how they interpret that Mm -hmm. i know that it will hit hit a certain note with some people and they'll find it very inspiring what have you um and it won't for others, and that's that's just the way it is, and that's fine. Amy and I had this moment where we saw somebody, it was on social media, but they, it was another craftsperson, and they kind of got trolled by somebody who <laughs> was just like, how could you justify spending, you know, 200 bucks on this little, like, wood thing when you can just go to Home Depot and, like, get it here? Yeah. And, and it was just kind of that thing you were talking about, though, Dawson, where people just, you can't, people are going to bring whatever it is to the table that they are coming from. And sometimes they can't get beyond that. And that's okay. Uh, Like, I I think it's all valid. I think, I think that that perspective is, I mean, I think spoon carving, I think it does have a very (laughs) silly aspect to it. It is incredibly silly to say, that I make a, that I, like my profession is carving spoons. <laughs> and so I, I honestly think that people who have opinions that, you know, what's this crazy guy doing selling a $30 spoon? I think that's completely valid. It's it, it, it it's, it all is absurd and silly and yeah. it all is deeply meaningful to me and some other people, you know, it does. No, it really. (laughs) No, absolutely. I think it sort of harkens back to what we were talking about. With, I mean, we were limiting the conversation then to diversity within a single craft or whatever, or the craft world. But I think when you kind of back out into the macrocosm, like, yes, we need people who are, you know, practical in that way or whatever adjective you want to apply to it, depending on your own experience. Yeah. But uh, 
but yeah, you need people who think like that in order to have people who think not like that. <laughs> and all of them are going to exist at the same time, regardless. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Picture if the world was only people talking about spoon carving, giving them godlike powers. Oh my God. It'd be a, be a pretty weird world. <laughs> I would maybe describe it as insufferable. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Who is someone inside your craft that you admire and maybe outside of your craft? And it's not a ranking system, just could be um, right. someone that you admire. I felt pretty good about about one person. You guys both may agree with this person, actually. That'd be Curtis Buchanan. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, <laughs> yep. He has some great interviews on YouTube and stuff uh along with a vast like treasure trove of instructional videos which are just uh it it just goes so beyond it uh, the amount of information in there but the just his interviews there's like three or four with different people um we're just so incredible um and i it's like the things i admire are his lack of pretense very non-pretentious about the craft he's very willing to share openly which i agree heavily with he seems to have from my perspective good balance of life and work Mm -hmm. he seems to have that pretty uh under control and exactly how he kind of envisioned his life playing out he seems to be active in his community too as kind of part of that work-life balance um it's not just work and family it's all it also seems to be quite community oriented and um i don't know i just think those are all something to aspire toward he's a Mm -hmm. great guy and a really really top-notch craftsman too it's just Mm -hmm. i i think he just built a really really nice life around the work he does it's fascinating to me that well okay number one i hope that people will be excited to hear that we just got confirmation from curtis to do an interview on the show so expect that in the coming weeks (laughs) yeah Yeah, very exciting (laughs) that's gonna be like a three hour long show i'm sure because he just has yeah really that might be a couple episodes (laughs) (laughs) he's got great stories yeah yeah no, uh, we Tim Manny does an incredible Curtis impression. Um, so if you want to hear that, oh, listen my. to our last episode oh, yeah. <laughs> or two excited. episodes ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, but no, he's featured heavily in the interviews so far. He's come up in at least this is I think the third or fourth, no fourth, including yeah. our first episode. Yeah, so many. Um, he's so influential. He is, and uh, and just such a sweetheart. And so I'm really excited for that. Yeah. that conversation yeah well on that note <laughs> dawson if someone wants to see more of your work where can they find you mostly instagram i do i have my website where you can buy stuff but i'll like to really see what i'm up to and all that would be instagram mm-hmm. and what's your handle michigan's lloyd <laughs> <laughs> maybe you can spell it yeah <laughs> Uh, that is michigan with s-l-o-y-d 
And that's also .com for the website. <laughs> uh, yep, michigansled.com. Yes. I was going to say I, two things quickly. Number one, if you wanted to hear another interview with Dawson, uh, he was featured earlier this year, late last year, on another podcast called the What's Your Craft podcast. And what I really liked about that interview was there was also uh, video footage and stuff like that of you working and on the property. So I thought that might be a place where people can see you in action. And then also you have a fantastic YouTube series on sharpening a knife, carving knife. I don't know. What's the term for that style of knife? A sloyd knife? What a do you sloyd call it? knife. Yep. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Cool. But yeah, it was I I I watched it. It was a very helpful tutorial. I consider myself a reasonably good sharpener, but I felt like that added more to my repertoire. So thank you, Dawson. Cool. Sweet. Well, thank you so much for taking, you know, all this time out of your morning. I know there's a lot going on, but yeah, thank you so much for talking with us today. Totally. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. Thank you guys for taking so much time out of your morning. <laughs> Dang, well, that was quite the carrot to munch on. <laughs> <laughs> so next up, we have an interview with penman David Grimes. So you can look for that episode two Tuesdays from today. And to give you a glimpse into the engrossing and carefully scripted world of penmanship, here's a brief clip from that interview. And actually, there's a really interesting story about that here in Portland. Apparently, there was a gentleman back in the day who's now passed away that if you spilled your ink and took a picture of the spill and sent it to him, he would send you back and like this anonymous certificate inducting you into this secret order called <laughs> the order of the black chrysanthemum. <laughs> okay, humble. What do we got? Please feel free to hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And rate and review us because it really helps with the show's visibility. Yes, and thanks so much to everyone who's taken the time to rate the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's super helpful. Also, thanks to everyone who has contributed to our Patreon account. Every dollar helps us bring you meaningful and entertaining interviews and enables us to help build a community that supports folks trying to get into handcraft. And in particular, we'd like to thank our new patrons, Rebecca and Brendan, for your support. Each week, we're getting a little bit closer to filling our minimum requirements for the t-shirt, so thanks to you all for your patience who've reserved one already. Also, follow us on Instagram at Cut the Craft Podcast to see images of our guest's work and stay up to date on happenings and releases. You can find us both on Instagram at Amy underscore Umble and at BH Beidler. If you have any questions, interview requests, or other crafts you would like to see represented, you can email us at cutthecraftpodcast at gmail.com. And we're also uh, still taking submissions for our next side projects, where we're looking to hear from you about what you do to push through a lack of motivation. Uh, we've had a few email responses so far, and even more since our last episode, so we're looking forward to seeing yours. We'll probably continue to do that until, until we've record that episode so it's just a rolling <laughs> it's a rolling thing keep them coming <laughs> and of course we would like to say thanks to those who've helped make this podcast a reality thanks to brad vetter for your graphic design our good friends the high divers for letting us use your tunes our resident poet justin williams for your commercial wizardry and to luke mitchell of the high divers for your help and advice with the technical side of things we hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Thanks. See you next time.